Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that whets your appetite for the Bible. I'm Rev. Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies, Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. Uh, happy last day of July, at least in the lectionary. Uh, don't say that. Now summer feels like it's ending. <laughs> well, as a wise teacher once said, Hevel, hevel, all is hevel. <laughs> you setting us up with an Ecclesiastes joke, Tim? <laughs> Gotta get it in while I can. And with today's first reading coming straight from Ecclesiastes, it seemed like the perfect moment for yeah. such a such a offering. This week's lectionary passage is actually a hodgepodge from Ecclesiastes. We start with Ecclesiastes 1-2, then we jump to verses 14 to 15 of that same chapter, and finally we skip all the way to chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Yeah. So what are you going to do with that hop, skip, and a jump around, Rachel? Well, so first I wanted to touch base on why this text is here today. Like what purpose it seems to be filling in the Revised Common Lectionary. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at the gospel text and in this stream of first readings, what the Revised Common Lectionary folks were trying to do was pair an Old Testament text that seemed to make sense with the gospel text for that week. So if you look at the gospel text, Jesus's words from Luke 12 seem to somehow coincide or intersect with these um, different passages from Ecclesiastes. This is kind of a fun text about Jesus in Luke 12 because it's a very pastoral moment, but maybe not pastoral in the way that we're used to thinking of that word. (laughs) So what's happening in the text is someone is trying to get Jesus to intervene in a family dispute about inheritance, and he is very quick to refuse their offer to intervene. So My pastor friends, raise your hand if you have ever been approached about a family dispute about inheritance. (laughs) They get messy, right? They get painful. You add any amount of family dysfunction, and what family doesn't have at least a little bit of dysfunction, and all of a sudden, the situation is poised to go nuclear. So I don't blame Jesus for his quick refusal to wade into that murky mess. And, I mean, really, the author of Ecclesiastes seems to set up this Luke 12 text with a perfect softball. Verses 18 to 19 in chapter 2 read, I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish, yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun." This also is vanity. You can almost picture Jesus saying, vanity, vanity. <laughs> vanity, vanity, vanity. And I'm definitely picturing like the, the hand to the forehead and, right? and leaning back in a very dramatic fashion. But juxtaposing Ecclesiastes with Luke 12 in this way just barely skims the surface of what the author in Ecclesiastes is talking about. Because they aren't actually talking about possessions. It's much broader and much deeper than just merely material wealth. The author in Ecclesiastes is actually talking about life itself. Mm, That's a big statement. Can you uh, put a little flesh on them bones? Sure, sure. Uh, Let me start by giving a little historical context first. So the author of Ecclesiastes is identified in these first few verses as someone called Kohelet in Hebrew, which means something like teacher or preacher or even assembly person. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's someone who stands up in public, right, and and speaks in an oratory type way. But the sermon or the speech or the lecture that they're giving here is not the most like enticing thing you may have ever listened to. Yeah, right. And I can never hear that name Kohelet without reminding myself and everybody around me that it's a feminine form. So it's very possible this could be a female speaker. That's right. And on her lips, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Those are the first words out of their mouth. Right. Which is, you're right, it's sort of an uneasy beginning. At least that's how it sounds to me. It's, It's kind of strange to be calling everything vanity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's right away where we get into a problem with translation, as you know, I know you know, Tim, but for our listeners' sake, the NRSV, the ESV, even the KJV, and several other Bible translations use that word vanity, or in verse 2, vanity mm-hmm. of vanities. So the Hebrew word here is that word you used in your, in your little quip at the beginning of our episode, hevel. And in many ways, hevel is an onomatopoeia, It's a word whose meaning is in some way captured by its sound. So if you listen as I'm saying it, I'm saying hevel, hevel, hevel. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. The the word in one sense at least means something like breath or vapor, which is where we get that strong sound at the beginning of the word. Mm -hmm. And that is not really captured by the word vanity, at least not as we use it today. You know, if I'm, if I'm using the word vanity, it sounds like, you know, Tim McNinch is constantly taking selfies, editing the light, erasing the blemishes and posting them to social media to garner the most likes, hits and followers. <laughs> really, you're just a social media influencer, right, Tim? Totally, totally. <laughs> but the meaning of vanity has shifted to that in the past 50 years or so. It would be more appropriate to translate hevel here with a phrase that still captures some of vanity's original meaning, which is something like in vain. And if you do something in vain, you do it without purpose or without meaning or without accomplishing the thing for which you set out. Uh, And this Mm -hmm. is a big shout out to one of my students, Val, who came up with that connection last semester when we were brainstorming translation issues in Ecclesiastes. So Awesome job, Val. And I'm telling you, Tim, I have the best students ever. Well, that could be disputable. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. That's exactly where we get some of the other translations for that word, hevel, like uh, futility or uh, the NIV has Hmm. meaningless, uh, that that sort of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Kohelet is really wrestling with a particular aspect of life called the act-consequence nexus. Okay, We're going to do a big pause there because that's a big scholarly phrase, which is not something I would just throw out in casual conversation. So let me break it down for you. The act-consequence nexus is a hallmark of wisdom literature in the Bible. And the basic idea is really familiar to us. Do good and you're rewarded with good. Do bad and you'll be punished with bad. It's sort of the overly simplistic view of karma that many of us Americans carry. You know that moment when you're telling a story about how something bad happened to someone who's a jerk, and you look at your friend, you roll your eyes, and you say, hmm, karma. <laughs> well, the next time that happens, you can be even more accurate by rolling your eyes and saying, hmm, acts consequence nexus. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't quite roll off the tongue, though. No, not not quite. You have to, you know, practice with it. <laughs> so, so here's the thing, though. Here's where I'm going with this. Samuel Adams, Bible guy, not the beer guy, makes a really interesting argument about the author of Ecclesiastes 
and their struggle with the simplistic karma act-consequence nexus. Adams argues that the belief in the act-consequence nexus, good deeds get you good rewards, bad deeds get you bad punishment, started to get challenged at a certain point in the history of God's people, likely after the exile. Mm, Right. And uh, for any new listeners, just a quick explanation. The exile, capital T, capital E, is the phrase that's used to describe what happened to God's people about 600 to 500 years before Jesus. They had existed as a mostly independent kingdom up until about 600 BCE when they were conquered by the Babylonians. About 15 years later, most of them were sent into exile in Babylon, where they stayed for 50 years, which is Mm. really about the the lifespan of a person back then, uh, before they were allowed to return to Jerusalem. That 50-year block is called the exile, and it marked a turning point, really, in the national life of God's people, uh, because really after that, they were almost always... Uh, conquered and oppressed people that were ruled by foreign superpowers, you know, mm-hmm. Persian, Greek, Roman. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, like you said, it's a capital T, capital E. It's a major watershed moment in the life of God's people. And one of the things that it did was change or shift or cause them to rethink a lot of their theology. So as you said, conquered and oppressed people for the foreseeable future at this time. So their social context became a lot less hopeful for achieving good in this life. So in other words, it's not like you can do good in this life and be rewarded with good because you are a conquered and oppressed people. And so you're always going to get the short end of a stick. So this sort of simplified karma act consequence nexus became something that couldn't be assumed anymore. Instead, it needed to be handled. It needed to be thought through. And this is actually my suggested preaching point for your sermon, dear listeners. Address the simplified karma act consequence nexus that we have here in the United States. It's it's exemplified by the common phrase that you hear, God won't give you more than you can handle. Mm, My teeth grind every time I hear that. Yeah. So you've you've heard this phrase before, Tim? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think... I think all of us have. And, you know, to be clear, some of us maybe even have found comfort from it or have used it to help people through in a tough time. It's good for those things. It's an effective phrase for many of life's troubles, but not for all of them. Right. Because for some people, there does come a day when they find they've been given more than they can handle. And in some scenarios, having more than they can handle can lead to depression, anxiety, trauma, even death or suicide. And then this simplified karma of the act's consequence nexus becomes a major problem that needs to be dealt with. Now, people deal with this problem in different ways. Uh, and, and my first big preaching pitfall is to say, if you choose to do this in your sermon, you got to be very, very careful about the way you do it. Because for some folks, this might be the phrase that helped them hang on through some of those really, really dark times. And you don't want to take that away from them necessarily. What you want to do is open up the possibilities that might help them if that act consequence nexus ever fails them. I I, I saw a meme that I thought was a, a really helpful one. I don't know who put it out or, or it wasn't attributed to anyone in, per, in particular, but it said this. The truth is people are dealing with more than they can handle all over the world. That's why we need God and why God's given us each other. I know, 
I've had more than I can handle more than once. God gave me strength and God gave me people who came alongside me to bear my burden when I couldn't, end quote. Hmm. Burdens are not things that we need to fear. They're not things that we need to hold by ourselves because if we reach out for help, then we're not trusting in God. They are seriously not meant for us to handle alone. Done carefully and with love and with tact, this type of sermon could lead your folks to actually feeling more rich with God, as Jesus says in Luke 12. So Kohelet here is giving a, a much-needed reality check when simplistic answers won't Yeah, be. exactly, exactly. Yeah, what a great reminder to have in a season when there's so much to overwhelm us. Mm. And let me throw just one more thing out there that I forgot to add in earlier. Um, mm -hmm. You might want to preface your sermon by putting out there that you are happy to talk about this with anybody who gets kind of hit by this sermon. You know, just, just start by saying, I'm going to preach on something that may be close to home for lots of folks, and I'd love to have coffee with you if, if this is something you want to talk more about. So please reach out to me. You know, open that door that this is the beginning of a conversation, and it might help people from shutting down if they feel um, challenged by what you have to say. Uh, that's really important because, you know, being a pastor is more than just being an orator. <laughs> yeah, right. right exactly. <laughs> and, and inviting people into relational processing of things rather than just listening to a speech is, yeah. is always a helpful thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a great thought to close on for today. Thanks for helping us think through that, Rachel. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, folks, if you'd like to learn more about our hosts and our guests, visit us at firstreadingpodcast.com. All of our episodes are there, and they're easily searchable with our search tool. You can also keep up with us on Facebook or send us an email to firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. We have a merch page. There's a button on our website. And you can also support us via PayPal contributions. Thank you to all of our supporters, including Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McMinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. <laughs>